So I've been busy the last few weeks here in ACF with a um, whole thing concerning revival, but basically we've entitled it Revision, because God spoke to me to start to revise, but there's a double up, but to re-envision us as a church that we can start getting back to what is our you know, DNA, what is our genetic as a church. And um, so we've been looking at that, and uh, last week we had an awesome service here, and uh, we just need to proceed with that. So this morning I want to just share something with you. There's a spirit, not a demonic spirit, it's a spirit, our spirit, that encourages a move of God, okay, that facilitates. There's a spirit behind every move of God. If we take the word revival out, and you, we just look at it from the point of view is that I really want to be used by God. I want God to use me. I want God to use me for signs, wonders, and miracles. In other words, that should be the norm. That should be the norm. We are disciples of Christ, and it should be the absolute norm. So there's other aspects to it, and I've been teaching on it. But basically, there is a spirit, and I'm talking about my spirit, your spirit. And, and so there's a spirit behind revival. There's a spirit that is attractive to God and that God responds to. And we're going to just start going through it in Scripture. And it's a spirit that you need if you want to be used by God. Is that okay? And so I want to just very quickly, I'm going to mention what it is. That spirit is a spirit of generosity. Everybody say generosity. So the generosity of God is something that is throughout Scripture. If we look at God's generosity, for God so loved the world that He what? He gave. God was generous. The generosity of God is incredible. He only had one son, but He gave the one son. Is that okay? If it required ten sons, He would have given ten sons. But it only required one, so God gave 100% of His family and invested the life of His son for the salvation of the whole world. But there's many other passages of Scripture. I looked at, yesterday when I was preparing, I quickly looked up at least 50 Scriptures that talk about the generosity of God just in our salvation. And I'm not going to read 50, but I'm going to read a few. Ephesians 1, 7-9. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of His grace. The riches of His grace, which He caused to abound towards us. The NIV says that He lavished on us with generosity. God lavished His wisdom on us and His understanding, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. So God is a lavish God. Is that okay? He was so extravagant with salvation that He extravagantly lavished Richly and bountifully, according to his riches, he poured out salvation on us and all its components. John says it like this, from the fullness, not just a measure, from his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. So God didn't just tithe himself, he gave himself. Are we all good? Titus 3, 47, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But this gift of the Holy Spirit, how did He pour Him out? Whom He poured on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we just see how God poured out His Spirit. God poured out His grace 
just immeasurably, abundantly. And then Paul talks about this in Colossians 2, 2 to 3, talking to the Colossian Christians. He's saying, this is my goal in ministry, is that you may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So God didn't just want us to have the odd little gem. He wants us to have all the treasures of. Are you with me? So God in our salvation was exceptionally, exceptionally generous. But not only that, you know, when revival comes, it is again the mercy of God. It's the generosity of God. Because God is not willing that any man should perish, but that every man should come to repentance. Isn't that right? And so God is abundantly generous. He's generous of spirit. You know, he's so generous that it says the just and the unjust equally pours out rain for them. Is that okay? The wicked and the righteous, he shines the sun on them. Isn't that amazing? The absolute generosity of God. And so James tells us mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's why even on the mercy seat with the lid, inside the box was the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, the law. And so the presence of God spoke of the law inside the box. But what he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So he had an atonement cover made and blood was poured on top. And that blood spoke of his mercy, his atonement. And what God was saying, just in that symbolism, mercy triumphs over judgment. And how did it triumph? By the blood of the cross. And then, you know, there's so many scriptures that are related revival-wise. You know, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. There's too many to look at. But just, you know, Psalm 65 is one of my favorite psalms. But then, of course, there's Isaiah 40, Isaiah 42, 43, and other passages. But Psalm 65, 9 to 11, you visit the earth and cause it to overflow. How about that one? You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with fatness, and your paths drip also with fatness. And then Psalm 68 verse 9, you shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. There's a Catholic minister by the name of Edwin Hayes. He wrote a little book, and it's called Prayer Notes to a Friend, and he suggests this. Make extravagant generosity your greatest vice and become godlike. <laughs> Should I read that again? I mean, that was one of those Catholics, you know. We're much better than the Catholics, you know. What a judgment. Listen to this man. As I said, he says, Make extravagant generosity your greatest vice and become godlike. Amen. Now, I'm talking to a generous church. Is that okay? Amen. Say, I'm generous. I'm generous of heart. I'm not into a spirit of poverty. But generosity of spirit is something that is essential to a move of God. It's something that's essential to revival. I was telling Bev 
when I was itinerating and ministering a lot, I mean, in the United Kingdom, there was an eldership couple. They were in eldership in one church in England, and uh, they were being prepared and trained for ministry, and they were so gung-ho and excited and things like this. And of course, whenever I went and ministered there, God moved, God touched, God blessed, and things like this. And they came to me one day, the husband and the wife, and they said, I was ministering in a church nearby, and they said, we're going to come tonight, but please, you know, we're preparing for ministry and this kind of thing, and, and we just love the way you minister and the prophetic, and could we stand with you and minister with you tonight just to learn how to minister to people and pick up and, and flow in the prophetic? I said, sure, you're welcome. I love doing that kind of thing, you know? So we start. And um, as soon as the prophetic starts to flow, I mean, everybody wants to be ministered. The entire church wants to be ministered to. So I'm starting now to minister. And because I often, you know, I'm going to lay hands, I'm going to, you know, whatever. And so this couple come forward and they're standing with me. They're all gung-ho. And I start ministering. And I was ministering to the first person, prophesying. And God touches them. I look at them and say, any word? you have something to say? No, not really. And, um, you know, God touches this person, second person, third person, fourth person. I don't even think we reach 10 people. And then the man goes like, whoa, I'm done. I'm exhausted. She says, me too, me too. And then they go and sit down. I've still got 100 and nearly 200 people left. And they go, oh, no, this is too much. Whoa, I'm exhausted. You know, and go and sit down. I mean, I mean, I haven't even finished ministering to the people. They've picked up their bags and they're waving to me and they've got to go home now. An absolute poverty of spirit. Come on, church. So I'm giving an indication where I'm going. Generosity begins with obedience to God. Because in obedience to God, He's trying to teach us how to have a generous spirit. Because we can become insular, isolated, self-centered, self-focused, and just me. Look at my needs. But God starts to speak to us and say, do this, do this, do this. Go there, share this, give this, tell this person, lay hands, pray for people. And what he's trying to do is to impart to us a generous heart like he has. A generous spirit that considers other people. Where your heart, your spirit is an open channel so that the river of God can flow through it. The problem with too many people's lives and spirits, it's full of dams. Yeah. You know, the dam wall and another dam wall, and we need to yeah. blow up the dam things that dam up the flow, you know? And so there's too many dam walls. There's too many. Our lives need to be an open riverbed for the blessing of God to flow through. I remember one prayer that changed my life. You know, you've got to be careful what you pray because God takes it seriously. Yeah. One day I said, God, I want these hands and this heart to be an open channel for the river of blessing. And then, you know, there's times when you're tired, when there's times when you're a bit miserable, when you're a little bit down. And then, you know, the Lord's telling you to go and do something, and you're going like, oh, I'm tired. And then he reminds you, didn't you pray this prayer? Come on, say amen. So generosity is an outcome, first of all, of obedience. There's a story in the state of Illinois in America. And uh, this pastor finishes the service. He goes into one of the convenience stores. And he's standing there. And there's a couple in front of them with their son. And uh, they're looking to buy groceries. And um, so they're standing and they're muttering between each other. And he's standing behind them. And suddenly the Holy Spirit says to them, pay for their groceries. So he's trying to figure out. He doesn't know. So he just grabs money out of his pocket. And he taps the man on the shoulder. He says, don't turn around. I don't want you to see my face. 
He says, but please will you accept this money? And he puts the money over and he says, pay for your groceries, but don't look back. So the man takes the money and he pays for the groceries and without looking back, they leave the convenience store. The story goes like this, that he had lost his job, they'd lost the house, they'd lost everything. They had no money. They didn't know where to go, what to do. So they decided the mom and the dad uh, came up with a suicide pact that they were going to first kill him, then he would kill her, then he would kill himself. They were going to go to a predetermined place in the woods. And uh, when they were about to do it, they said, well, let's do one last splash out and just treat our son to his favorite meal. And they got the ingredients when they got to the till. They didn't even have enough money to pay for the ingredients. And that was the discussion when suddenly a tap on the shoulder and this pastor says, don't look back. And gives them the money and says, pay for your groceries. And he closed with this, remember, Jesus loves you. They were so overwhelmed when they got to the destination, they were in tears. They were weeping and they said, well, if Jesus loves us, we can't do this. So they ate the meal and didn't do the suicide. It's nine years later. This pastor is preaching in a church in Illinois nearby to where the incident happened. And he stands up and he preaches the sermon. When he says amen and closes, a couple come up. The very first couple to come up comes up to him. And this man says, nine years ago, I was in a convenience store. I was standing at a checkout point and we had bought groceries. We were going to commit suicide. And uh, we didn't even have enough money to pay for the groceries. Relates the story back to the pastor. And he said, when he suddenly there's a tap on my shoulder, and man says, don't look back, and puts money around, and we could, and he tells him the whole story. And this man says, and I know it was you. <laughs> so the pastor says, how do you know? He says, by your accent. He was a South African pastor. He's a South African pastor. <laughs> said, I recognize your accent. He says, but I want to tell you, you saved three lives that day. Come on, church. Generosity, generosity is the beginning. And we learn it, first of all, by obedience, but there's a higher thing that I want to bring up. And if we want God to use us, we have to have generous hearts. Come on, church. It's not just about money, but it starts there. Somehow, God uses finances to teach us how to get into obedience. It's really interesting. But just listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. And this came out of the gift of a poor church, a church that was just in extreme poverty, and they took up the most generous gift. They gave beyond their means. And Paul says, you didn't only give of your finance, but you gave us your hearts. Come on, church. That's the thing that God's after. That in all our giving, we give Him our hearts, and we become godlike in our generosity. Come on, church. And He uses the whole thing with finances. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, the apostle Paul says this, you will be enriched in every way, in every way, in every way. So when he spoke to the Corinthians, he said that generosity with which you gave, where you even gave yourselves to us first, you gave your hearts, you put your heart into it behind your gift. He says, you will be enriched in every way. So come on, say, in every way. I will be enriched in every way. So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. But there's another aspect of generosity that I want to bring to you. I read this verse some years ago, 
And I remember underlining it. I don't think it's in this Bible, but I underlined it, and I actually wrote there, I wish I could have read this book. I hope they find it. Samuel wrote a book. Samuel. The prophet Samuel wrote a book. No, he did. Okay. No, but some people look at me like, really? Not only First and Second Samuel, but he wrote another book. Okay. So look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 25 to 27. So they've just chosen Saul as king, and he's been anointed with oil, or God chose him and, and, and brought him to the people, and Samuel anoints him as king. But now just watch this. Then Samuel explained to the people, listen to this, the behavior, that's 1 Samuel 10, 25 to 27. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. One translation says, he explained to people the regulations of the kingship. That's the NIV. Put it in the K KJV, King James Version. The way of royalty. What did he say, the way of royalty? So the behavior or the way of royalty. And he wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. So he's explaining the way of royalty to the people, and then he records it in a book, and then he goes into the presence of God in the tabernacle, and he lays it up in the presence of God. Is that okay? In other words, he submits it to God. Yes. In other words, what he's just explained to the people is a reflection of God's art. So he submits it before the Lord, so it's the manner of the kingdom. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man, and it says every man to his house. And Saul also, he's just been anointed king. All the people of Israel, Samuel has explained to them the behavior or the way of royalty, and now they all go home. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. When they heard, this is the manner of royalty, valiant people went with him. But there were people who were not valiant, and he calls them rebels. He says, but some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, no gifts. So part of what Samuel had explained to the people was how to appropriately honor a king. And part of it was to bring gifts. That's why when... Queen of Sheba went to go and visit King Solomon. She brought a massive gift. Before she left, King Solomon blessed her with an even greater gift. When the wise men came from the east, they didn't bring three little boxes. They brought 200 wagon loads of gold, myrrh, and frankincense that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars in today's currency, probably heading towards billions. They came with 200, and they were represented by three gifts. It was not three wise men. There was many more wise men that came from the east. And they said, where is he born king of the Jews? So they came with gifts to honor that was befitting of a king. This is the way of royalty. What is the way of royalty? Kings bless kings. Kings bless the king. Amen. With a generous heart. It's like I said, if you go and see the president and you're invited to go and meet with the president of the United States, you don't buy a two-rand big pen and take it as a gift. You take something that is that level appropriate. Is everybody with me? And so we need to learn the way of royalty. So there's something that is beyond 
just learning generosity from obedience, there's something that upstages it, but that's where we begin. And so in Luke chapter 16, there's an incredible story, a parable that Jesus told. And um, often I scratched my head about that parable because it seemed like in Luke 16, Jesus was speaking well of a man who was acting fraudulently. But once you understand the parable, he was not acting fraudulently, he was acting wisely. Okay, you remember the story? Jesus told the parable of a shrewd manager. And one day, one day, he calls the manager and he says, I've heard that you like mismanaging my inheritance. And so what the manager was doing, the steward, the steward was normally a slave who had excelled and he was promoted into the position where he'd look after the wealthy person's estate. So on that estate, of course, the wealthy man would produce oil and grow wheat and do all of those kinds of things. And then when people needed wheat or oil or something, they would come to the wealthy man and they would come actually to the steward who represented him. And they would take, for example, 50 measures of wheat and you know, so many measures of oil. And according to the law of Moses, you could not add interest. But of course, you know, the Jews are very wise and they know how to get around, you know. And so what they would do is they would say, no, no, it's not interest. It's a fixed charge. And so what this manager was doing was saying, all right, you want 50 measures of wheat, you must pay back 100 measures. You want 20 measures of oil, you must pay back 40 measures of oil. I'm forgetting the exact figures now. And then what happened was the poor people started to get agitated because, you know, the rich are taking advantage of the poor. This is the possible scenario. And so the rich man calls him in because now there's a big hua and whatever. And things like calls him in and says, hey, you know. And, you know, but according to the Mosaic law and things like that, he couldn't actually fire him. It would just be he would be shamed. So the shrewd manager goes, well, like, I can't dig and I can't this because I'm too old and I'm this and I'm that. And the next thing, I better make a plan. So he calls the debtors and he says, okay, you took 100 measures of oil, just pay back 50. You took however many measures of wheat, just pay back. So one was, you know, he reduced it by half and the other one he reduced by 20%. And then when the manager heard, he said, yeah, yes, more slim there. In our language, you're very clever. That was very shrewd. And he commends him. He commends him. And then he says this, the sons of this world are wiser than the children of light. And he says, go and learn from them because they know how to, I'm putting in my own words, they know how to use finance to gain friends. So it wasn't, Jesus wasn't, so he actually was not being wicked. He was being wise. And he was saying, to change the sentiment of the people, the debtors, and then it, it possibly turned into praise for the rich man because like, wow, what a generous rich man. So he got out of it, but he also gained friends out of the debtors. Is that okay? And Jesus said, use worldly wealth to make friends and gain acceptance, you know, and welcome into eternal dwelling. So the whole point is use finance for spiritual things. Use finance for spiritual blessing. Is that okay? So he starts with finance. But you've got to understand that your finance represents so much more than money. It can bring back so much more than money. And one of the things finance can do is help you to develop the whole principle of honor. Awesome. So generosity then 
for me, would be at the heart of revival. You know, isn't it amazing, um, you know, going through COVID and all this kind of thing, we've got to have two services, and, and I'm not getting at anybody in particular, everyone in general, I just heard recently. And it's amazing that you have two services and then, you know, certain people that are doing ministry are going to work twice as hard and things like this. And then we start talking about, and maybe I led the way, you know, and, and I was wrong, so forgive me, I repent, I'm not going to do it again. And then we start going, oh, everybody, thank you for your sacrifice. You know, a great revivalist said this one day. He said, if the king of your country, if the president of your country phoned you and asked him to do a favor, you'd rush around and do it to the best, to the nth, yeah. and you would say, I count it such a privilege to do this That's for you. Right. He says, what about the king of kings? Yeah. Isn't it amazing that when it comes to serving God, oh, it's a, such a sacrifice. Yeah. I gave, but it was such a sacrifice. No, he paid the sacrifice. Prophet Kirby says, you pay a privilege. Yeah. Isn't that right? This morning, let's, come on, I know we're tired, we're down, it's been a hard week. Come on, everybody, but just lift your hands, let's bring a sacrifice of praise. Oh, that was hard, but you know, he blessed me. No, it's an honor. It's a privilege. Is that okay? I went and apologized. I just, I just had it this week, someone didn't talk to me for two years. And it wasn't my fault, I had done nothing wrong. They badmouthed me all over the place, everybody in conferences, and they told stories and all sorts of things. And, and uh, basically just said it to my face, cut you off, no more friendship with you, nothing. Sure. And um, we just prayed, and we just said, God, I didn't do anything wrong. Almost to the day, two years later, this week, I get a phone call. I ask your forgiveness. I may have overreacted. So I said, whoa, 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 whoa stop, stop, stop. You did overreact. Just so that you know what you're apologizing for. You did. <laughs> so if you want to continue asking for forgiveness, go ahead. I didn't say that, but, but that was what I was saying. <laughs> so, and I, I mean, I was extremely gracious because, I mean, it was, it was extremely bad and extremely wrong. And I said, unreservedly, without hesitation, I forgive you. I said, I wasn't offended one moment. Come on, church. And so this is the way of royalty. This is higher than simply obedience to God's word. Okay, well, God says so, and I just got to do it, I guess, because I'm a Christian. All right, I'll forgive you. Well, that's obedience, but it's not the way of royalty. And we learn the way of royalty in our forgiveness, in speaking forgiveness over people. And so it's important for us to know this. Amen. So... It's not a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. Come on, ushers. It's not a sacrifice to sit at the back. Or yeah. oh, I sacrifice the service every week because I've got to shake hands at the door. I sacrifice every week because I'm doing camera duty. No, you're paying a privilege. It's an honor. It's an honor to serve God and to serve people. That's the way of royalty. Come on. That's because you've got a generous heart. God is developing in you a generous spirit. To say, I will lay down my likes and dislikes. I will lay it down. I will forego. I will pick it up later. I will do it. 
The band is here earlier than everyone else. They practice in the week. They thrash it out before church starts. And then sometimes even at the end of the service, Pastor John wants them back up again. Do that song again. It's not a sacrifice. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to sit in the FCC. It's a privilege to go out and train up those children in the ways of the Lord. It's a privilege. Oh, sacrifice the service again. You know, you've got live stream now. You can go back and watch it in the week. Yes. Isn't it amazing? In the days before live stream, people go, oh, I always miss out the service. And, and, and You know, but somebody's got to pay the price. Yeah, well, it might as well be you then. <laughs> might as well, because God's trying to teach you how to have a generous spirit. So it's a privilege. If we want to move of God, we've got to start learning the way of royalty. I discovered some of the background stories why Prophet Quibus had revival in his church. And they bought brand new cinema seats like this. And when people started seeing the miracles, people started coming with HIV AIDS where they were at death's door. And they would sit on those brand new cinema seats that cost hundreds and hundreds of rands each. And they would be bleeding out of all the orifices. They had no bladder control, no sphincter control. And those who served in the church would have to strip the covers off the seats and go and wash them and sanitize them and have them fitted back for the next service. No complaining. It's the way of royalty. Come on, church. You know, we say we want revival until revival comes. You know, God's moving. Wow. Well, awesome, we need to. Come on, let's have a service tonight. Oh, no, no, another one. You know, Sunday morning is so long, and we just get finished with it, and it's like, you know, and it's like, and what, again, another service? And wow, God's moving. Let's meet Wednesday night. Oh, near, yes, like, that's the night I watched this movie, you know? I watched that series, you know? Church again. Come on, there needs to be a radical change in our hearts. Amen? Because when revival comes, I've been in so many revivals. I remember being in Toronto, in Canada, and I remember night after night, they used to take Monday nights off, but night after night, day after day, Wednesday, two services, because then they would minister to all the pastors who were coming in from all over the world. And I looked, same band, same band, same band, same worship team, same band. I'm looking for a second, third, fourth, fifth band. It's the same band. And one day the guy comes pulling up in his van like this, and he climbs out and he climbs out with his family. He's bringing his guitar, and I recognize him. He's one of those that wrote a lot of the vineyard songs. So I thought, let me, it's interesting. Let me just go up and go and find out. And I went to him and said, hey, brother. I said, I've been here for a week. And I said, and every time there's worship, it's the same band, the same band. I said, how do you guys do it? Don't you get tired? He said, brother, it's revival. It's pedal to the metal, man. Come on, that's a generous spirit. Now, I'm not talking about burning out. You understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking that we work you to death and kill you and all that kind of thing. But very often we say, God, I want you to use me. I want you to use me. I want this. I want that. God, use me. And we don't find that we're being really powerfully used of God. Maybe, maybe one of the aspects is you you don't have a generous spirit. And maybe the program that you're in, the walk that you're in, maybe you're still at the point where you're just learning obedience to God. Obedience and duty is just about on the same level. 
But when it escalates and it is no longer a duty where it becomes a joy, when it starts to become a joy, that's when you start to step into the way of royalty, when you start discovering, man, this is an absolute privilege to be able to do this. Come on, let's learn the way of royalty because it's at the heart. It's at the heart of revival. So your ministry, we need to be generous in our worship. It's amazing how a little incident gains such significant attention in the Bible. You know, Jesus' ministry for three and a half years, John covers it in about 21, 22, 21 chapters, I think. But he takes a whole chunk to talk about Mary anointing Jesus in John chapter 12. We'll come to it now. Anointing Jesus' feet with a bottle of pure nard that was equal to one month's salary. Takes time to mention it. Takes time to mention who was there. And each one of the characters that are mentioned or the group of characters that are mentioned stand for a particular attitude or a particular spirit. And so the extravagance of our worship, the degree of our worship needs to be extravagant before God. Is that okay? Yeah, and within your personality type as well, I understand, yeah. you know. But it needs to be something that is honoring. Our prayer, I love what Charles Spurgeon says when he explains the honor of prayer. He says, what a privilege is intimate communion with the Father of our spirits. It is a secret hidden from the world, a joy which even the nearest friend can't meddle in. It's unbelievable, you know. So Paul says this. He said, um, even with our witness. So our ministry, our church attendance, there needs to be a generous spirit. When it comes to worship, generous spirit. When it comes to prayer, generously, here and at home. When it comes to the reading of the word, generous spirit when it comes to God. Just everything about our lives needs to be a generous spirit with our witness. I mean, we have the message that can change the world. Amen. We have the power that can transform this planet. But if we don't have a generous spirit, isn't it amazing? You know, I'm amazed that so many Christians, if they're asked to do something, it's just not convenient because they have a timetable that dictates, and it's just not convenient. It's not convenient to go and pray out for that sick person now. It's not convenient to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and pray, you know, because I need my beauty sleep because, you know, just now I'm going to go to work. Come on, church. A generous spirit, a generous spirit. You know, if you understand the way of royalty, you'll go above and beyond. You'll just go, oh, God, what, a, what, an, what an honor to go and touch a life. What an honor. God, I'll do it. Yeah. Some of the results. Luke chapter 6, I think from verses 1 to 38. What a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. Here, a spirit of generosity is being encouraged. It's amazing that in Luke 6, let me just read quickly. But to you who are listening, this is Jesus speaking to a crowd. And he's saying, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's a generous spirit. Because that's what he did with us. Even when we were enemies, he had already forgiven us. Isn't that right? So the way of royalty is the way of God. Become God-like. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. Then hit them back. Oh, it's not there. It's not there. No, sorry. It's not there. 
That's the other apostle of John. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. He says, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, there should be a distinction between the love in the church and the love in the world. He says, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect the repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But no, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get back anything. Then your reward will be great. Then your reward will be great. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High God because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Amen. Come on, that's a generous spirit. Come on, come on. Yeah, let's clap. I mean, that's God-like hearts. Come on, church. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this that he lays down his life for his friend. And he says, and you are my friends. In Luke chapter 6, he goes on in verse 37 to say, and do not judge. And then he says, and don't judge, because the measure with which you, you measure our judgment, you know, you will be judged. Judge not, and you shall be judged. Condemn not, and you shall be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Then, in verse 38, and often we use this as an offering message. You can, but it's not talking about offerings. Listen to verse 38. Give, and it shall be given to you. Give what? If it's not talking about money, give what? Give love. Give forgiveness. Give acceptance, not judgmentalism. Give those. Then you'll be like God. Is that okay? But how do you get to that place? How can you learn that place? You learn that from the first time you started giving your tithes because God was starting to teach you generosity by mere obedience and duty. But now maybe you're at a place of where you understand the way of the kingdom and now for you it's no longer about this is such a privilege. This is an honor to be included. In the kingdom this is an honor. And I tell you, it brings such reward because Jesus says, if you give all these things, it will be given to you. It's amazing how we're so good at setting up a trial for people that have injured us. Because how dare they? Do they not know I'm the Lord's anointed? I have the favor of God. And if they're not careful, the very wrath of God will appear in lightning and strike them down. We set the courtroom, we appoint the judge, we appoint a jury, all biased, of course. And they're all us, of course. The judge and every member of the jury is me. And they tried, and they found guilty. And we execute a trial over them, verbally or in our minds. Declaring how the wrath of God is going to find them. And when we hear something goes wrong, we go, oh, yeah, you see, it's because. If you hadn't done that to me, 
you wouldn't have tripped and broken your leg in 27 places. And if you don't repent, I just want you to know that's just the beginning. But Jesus talks about the fact here is that if we do not, the courtroom setup that we set will be the courtroom setup that we will step into on the day we offend. It says if you show mercy and kindness and forgiveness, when you step into the courtroom, you will get the same leniency and the same mercy. Everybody say amen. Come on, this is the way of royalty, is it not? And so Jesus says, you know, if you give, it will be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they shall give into your bosom because you gave it to them first. For with the same measure that you measure, it will be measured to you again. But you know, it's not only in the fact of, um, in the respect of forgiveness and those other attitudes, but certainly it plays a part. How could Jesus hang on the cross and then lift his head gasping through lungs that were restricting and that all that agony and that pain and look at the howling crowd that was hurling abuse at him, you saved others, save yourself, and cursing him and all those kind of things and then stretch up and look up to his Father in heaven and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How could he say that? Because he never walked in offense. His entire life he forgave. And so if his worst moment, there was such a spirit of generosity in him that he was able to push himself up and he was able to say it down through decades, across centuries, right down to you and I, because we're also the reason he died on the cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not only that, but when it comes to ministry, when it comes to revival, when it comes to power, it says that the amazing thing is Jesus said this when he sent the disciples out in Matthew 10. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Here's the catchphrase. Freely you've received, freely give. Come on, church. If that doesn't epitomize a spirit of generosity to see the power of God move. Listen, we are so willing to receive the blessings. We're so willing to receive God's mercy, God's forgiveness, and everyone else's. We're so willing to receive God's power. If God has ever done something for you ever in your life, provided, healed, blessed, you need to be in a place where that same God-like spirit of generosity, like the disciples, you are able to turn around and do that for others. Amen? If God ever canceled your debt, you can cancel someone else's debt. So... The amazing thing about Mary, the Bible tells us that there was a meal given in Jesus' honor, and it tells us it was in the town where Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and the disciples were there. Everyone say the disciples. And secondly, it says that Judas was there. It was also partly in his honor. And then it says Mary was there and Martha was there, four groups of people. And they represent four different attitudes. Um, and I'm not going to mention the others for the sake of time. But whenever you find Jesus and you find a group of people, you can slot them in. But it was only, you know, Martha was so busy running around serving. And there's nothing wrong with serving. I understand what I'm talking about. But it was Mary who came in and took a bottle of pure nard and anointed Jesus. And it says the fragrance filled the whole room. It was about a year's worth salary. I mean, incredible. So just take your salary times 12. And that's basically what it would have cost you 
in perfume to pour on the feet of Jesus. Apparently a waste. But Jesus said, she anointed me to prepare me for burial. And wherever the gospel is told, we're told in her honor. So we're honoring Mary this morning because of her extravagant gift. But her act of worship, the Bible says that the smell of the perfume filled the entire room. It's an amazing that your worship, your adoration, your giving to God can fill an entire space. It can blanket out other wrong attitudes around Jesus. Is that okay? And it was Judas who was the one that said, you know, why is this waste? You know, this could be sold and the money given to the poor. And then John makes a note and says, not that he cared about the poor. And also he was a thief because he would steal. In other words, a pauper spirit, an impoverished spirit, cannot move into greater things for God. It's the same Mary who goes running to the tomb, John chapter 20. She goes running to the tomb, looks inside the tomb, stones rolled away, it's empty. Runs back, goes and tells Peter and John. Peter and John run there, look inside, they see the clouds fall up, they look around, they go home. Mary hangs around, she's weeping. She looks in again and she sees two angels standing there. The representation of the Ark of the Covenant. One angel standing at the head, one at the feet. The mercy seat now is the laid out body of Christ. Woo! Amen. And so they're standing there. And then she turns around and then she sees someone who she thinks is the gardener. And the gardener says, who are you looking for? She said, I'm looking for my Savior. If you've seen him, if you know where he is, tell me so that I can go and fetch him. And so then Jesus says, Mary, she says, Rabboni. She comes up to embrace him. He says, don't touch me. I've not yet been to the Father. But go and tell the brothers that I'm going to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Woo! And so Mary, with the most generous spirit who tapped into the way of royalty, gets the greatest revelation of Jesus than all of the disciples. See, your generous spirit will result in other things. Jesus said, freely receive, freely give, which means that you will freely receive, which means you can freely give more, which means you can freely receive, which you can freely give more. Is that okay? And so, so much comes back to you. And um, so she had the greatest portion. And then I just mentioned it for you, for you making notes, that in Acts chapter 10, there was a man from the, the Italian regiment, and he was not a Jew. He never brought the gifts and sacrifices that Jews brought. Never. Because he was a Gentile. So, so to speak, he's outside of the covenant. He's outside of citizenship. He's, you know, without hope and without God in this world. But he's got such a heart. Are you all listening? He's got such a heart for God that he prays and he gives to the poor. And then one day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a significant time, an angel comes and addresses him and speaks to him and tells, gives him this elaborate you know, thing, go and call Peter. And, and you know the whole story. Then Peter comes there. And as he's talking, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And the Gentiles now receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so salvation broke out. Because of one man, one man, he didn't have the correct order of service. He never sacrificed the way the Jews were supposed to sacrifice. But God, who does not delight in sacrifices and offerings, looked at his heart 
and saw a heart for God, a generous spirit, and he poured out the spirit on the Gentiles. Amen. The beginning of what came to us. Because of one man, come on church, with a generous spirit. And it wasn't only his giving, it was also his praying. In other words, what he did financially, he did spiritually. And it's time, church, it's time. If we want to see things happen, then we need to be able to do that as well. And then the last thing you can do is write down Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. And you can see how God says, in response to your giving, because he said to the Israelites, you're robbing from me in tithes and offerings. In other words, you've not got the way of royalty. It's part of the covenant blessings. You're supposed to tithe. And he says, stop stealing. And uh, start giving your tithes and offerings. And then in Malachi chapter 4, he talks about the fact that there'll be no curses. We'll get back to the hearts of the father, the original fathers. We'll get back to that pure faith. And then he also talked about the fact that the son of righteousness will rise upon you with healing in his wings. I mean, what a powerful prophetic scripture. Come on, church. If we move into a generous spirit, God will do something really awesome for us. Amen. Come on, we need to have generous spirits, generous spirits, generous, generous, generous spirit. If we want God to move, generous spirit, generous spirit. There are certain songs that when they're written, become extremely prophetic of the time that we're living in. There is such a subject as present day truth. The Bible is full of truth. It is true. It's true in whatever generation. In whatever generation, it's true, whatever. But there are times when truth comes out in a particular generation, and then it becomes present day truth. And if any of you that have been here long enough remember that I talked about how the end of the age, because there were three different worlds, three different ages. There was the one before the flood. There was the one from the flood to the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. It started to wind down with the coming of Jesus. Then from A.D. 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem, we enter into a new heaven and a new earth. The end of the world that everybody is waiting for happened, A.D. 70. The Antichrist, A.D. 70. The Mark of the Beast, A.D. 70. Those things are not things to come. We're in the third world, the third age, and Paul tells us, In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21, this world, he says, is a world without end. So when people start talking about the end of the world, they're talking history. They're not talking future and prophetically. This world is a world without end. Is that okay? So I'm going to just throw it in. So if Christ was the end of the law, age, the law world, the law period, so when he died on the cross, that signaled because... Paul tells us in Hebrews 9, he was crucified once for all at the end of the age. So he ended that age. And he was then the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, the third world. This world that we live in. So if Christ was the end of the law, what does the end of this age look like? Bearing in mind that the word end can also mean purpose and goal. So the goal of the law was to introduce Christ. So what is the goal of Christ? The goal, the end of this age, the purpose for this age, what is it? It's for us to stand up in full salvation, full maturity as sons and daughters of God. Those characteristics are defined by love. Are you with me, church? So it's when we start walking in maturity, we'll start walking in the bond of perfection that Paul talks about in Colossians 3, which is love. And love 
is the way of royalty. That's why this song is a present day truth song. Watch the words. Better than a dream. 
Generosity and forgiveness and non judgment. Generosity and mercy. Generosity and love. Freely you have received. Freely give. This is one of those sermons that you can't apply with a prayer line. But you can end with the prayer and say, get in line with the word and live it out this week. So the Lord bless you. <laughs>